across campus, online, and on 12:51 a.m. This, this, this is your student radio station. Welcome to the final alternative view of the term. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you company, whether you've been listening to us live on Raw 1251 AM or you've been catching up with our shows on Mixcloud and Spotify. And you may have noticed last week's show hasn't gone up yet. Um, I've been, I'm a very busy individual, but it will be going up by the end of the week as with this week's show as well. But yes, um, welcome. It's, it's been it's very strange. Definitely, we've come to the end of another term. It's almost been, as I said, last week, almost a year now since we put the programme into place and it's been absolutely fantastic to have your support as we've gone through now i think this is episode number like 15 or 16 certainly since we've come on to come onto the radio itself i think we've done about 30 shows if you include all of the live streams we've done as well so it's absolutely fantastic to have had all of your support um as always we have a jam-packed show today quite a lot has happened within the last week and so it's going to be important i think really for us to start talking about some of the most important issues facing um, the country and indeed in many ways the world that we'll be covering in this show today. So we'll be talking a little bit about policing in the UK. Of course, um, the tragic and horrific death of Sarah Everard last week has caught the public eye and really is a response to that and the vigil that was held on Saturday night and disrupted by the Met Police. A lot of questions have been raised about the Metropolitan Police We'll be talking a bit about that, plus the general um, reforms that have been discussed in recent years about the police. And a lot of criticism has been aimed towards the police throughout the pandemic and as well throughout the Black Lives Matter protests last year. And of course, now with the new policing bill that has come into Parliament this week. So we're going to be talking a little bit about that. We'll also be talking a bit about the news kind of fresh out of the block really yesterday. The UK Foreign Policy Review um, came out and a lot of changes to the UK's foreign policy stature, a lot of new ideas, particularly with regards to things like nuclear weapons, um, ideas and responses to China. We're going to be talking a little bit about that and what this also means for the image of global Britain, something we've discussed quite a bit on the show. And we'll also be talking about next term at Warwick, of course, as one term ends, we look ahead to a new one. And it's, I've got to say, I think there's a lot of optimism. Yes, we have essays. Yes, we have exams. Yes, it's going to be extremely fun getting these all done. But um, on a lighter note, we're hoping, of course, the restrictions getting eased and we can start to socialise a bit more. We can start to do more stuff on campus. So really looking forward to um, discussing about this and also the potential return of pop in term three. God, I have missed it. We'll also be talking about GB News, which is set to launch in the UK before the end of the month. What does this mean for the UK broadcasting scene? What changes is this going to be? And is this as some broadcasters or some commentators have said the British Fox News. And finally, the Prime Minister turns 300 years old um, on the 3rd of April. We'll be talking a little bit about the history of the Prime Minister, how has it changed over time, and most importantly, who our guests' favourite PMs are. I think this is fair to say there's quite a few figures we could put on this list. There's quite a few that I think, judging by the panel today, they may not mention, and I may have to put into the put into the discourse just to see what they think of them but we will come to that at the end of the show but let's start off with our guests as always it has been our support network for this show throughout the last year and in his final week as head of news um enoch thanks for stopping by on the alternative view 
Um, Cam, thanks for having me. Even even though um, now I've been deposed from power, thank you for that. Well, well you're not quite deposed yet. You are deposed by I think Friday is the day oh. when you finally hand over your duties to wh- whomever is lucky enough really to be able to take over from you because you've done a fantastic job over the last year adapting to COVID, building up the news department to what we have now, which is a very I would say a department that can do so much not just in the studio but a lot of a massive online presence as well um what's your reflections on your year as head of news um what's my reflection i mean i'm just very i'm very tired i'm <laughs> i'm very glad it's over it was great to do it but I'm, I'm very tired and i'm not ready to do anything else um also i don't think i didn't know if you're trying to butt me up there i can't give you the job that's not how it works I'm, 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 I'm not i'm not asking i'm not asking to be given the job i'm reflecting on the brilliant work that you've okay. done over Thank the last year because certainly um, i think as a society it's been raw has been particularly challenged because we have been outside of our natural habitat yes but we've certainly adapted to our new habitat and the news content as well you know big decision election coverage you know all the fantastic stuff that you've directed certainly a lot to be proud of within the last year yeah you know you it is, it is a lot that's what it is just for me that it's just a lot a lot of things done and now, now it's coming to an end. Um, and I will miss it. I will, I will miss being head of news. But at the same time, I'm glad someone new can take over and bring some new life to the department, give it some new energy, hopefully go on and do bigger and better things than even I can even imagine. So, Well, it's great to have you on the show for your last show as head of news, Enoch. Um, let's move on now to another regular. Um, Odysseus Digbasanis, a very good afternoon to you. Yeah, good afternoon from Athens, Cam. It's great to be on again. Yeah, it's great. You, you've been on. I've lost track of how many shows you've been on now, but it's, it's fantastic to have you on. I, I said that for a second, like you've lost track and I'm saying it's a bad thing. It's fantastic to have you on again. Um, we'll be talking a little bit about term three um, very shortly later on in the show. But obviously you're in Athens at the moment. Um, how are you how are you going to sort of try and do term three from Athens? Obviously, things may be opening up here in the UK. Are you sort of waiting for that right moment to come over? Yeah. And, you know, it's it's kind of like being stuck uh, between a rock and a hard place because I really do want to come back as soon as possible. But I'm not quite sure when the right time for that uh, will be. And I hope I can make it to to our final pop uh, in term three. I don't want to miss that. So, I mean, just we'll have to wait and see and try and play it by ear, because I think for other internationals as well, it's, it's quite difficult at times to sort of arrange uh, term three from now. And I've got to ask you as well, as we're talking about societies at the moment, and Work Think Tank has been something you have been extremely heavily involved in over the last year. Um, obviously, talk, talk to us about it. You mentioned it a few times on the show, but it's a society I, I haven't heard of before this year. and Maybe that's just through me being blissfully ignorant. <laughs> but um, how, how have you found the society growing over the last year? Uh, it's definitely been a challenge and I think we're, we're elections open today so uh, for anyone who's listening to to this tomorrow please do go on the society page and vote um, yeah we were a really small society at the beginning of uh, term two last year but uh, with with the new exec that came in we sort of managed to grow and become like a, a research-led society. And actually, we are publishing our second uh, research report, I think, tomorrow. And we're going to have a launch event for that. 
Uh, and it's just a great way to get students involved in sort of the world of policy making and to get down to sort of the nitty gritty of what good policy is, how to sort of analyze policy. And that, that's been extremely interesting to do. But um, I have to sort of echo the sentiments that Enoch put out there that I'm just kind of tired of it. I've done a lot of work and it's time for someone else to take over and, and sort of build on that, I think. I think tired is a very common phrase that I think is being used amongst a lot of people. Well, um, thanks very much for coming on, Dizzy. Let's bring on our final guest now. Um, Tom Highmore, fresh from the show last week, couldn't resist coming back on the second week. It's great to have you back. Hi, yeah, Cam. What can I say? I I was aching to come back. (laughs) Well, of course, and we had to. Of course, you had to leave us early as well. So I'm hoping you can stay the full course this time. Yes, definitely. Um, We've been, again, I feel we're on the moon now just talking about all of our societies this year. But... um, You've been captain of the swimming team in a year. We discussed it last week in a year, really like no other. I mean, do you have any, okay, can you fill us in on any plans you have for next year? Are you plan to go for captaincy again? What are you hoping for, for the future? Well, I don't know if I am allowed to talk about what I am planning to go for or not planning to go for as the elections are on Thursday. Um, but I'm excited for next year. I think that, Coronavirus has given a chance to really kind of look at the sort of environment within clubs and kind of reevaluate that and kind of start it, start taking it in a new direction and building it in a post-COVID world. And I think that next year is just going to be a really exciting opportunity to do that. It's almost at this point I should convince myself that I should start taking up swimming or any sport. Oh, we'd be happy to have you, Cam, honestly. Do you know what? I, I, well, I used to be hilarious. Well, I say hilariously scared of the water. I used to be like, I couldn't swim until I was about eight or 10. And I still to the point that you go out in the sea sometimes, you like, you know, you go out and your eyes get all like really salty and all that. And I'm still, I'm still not quite fully over that yet. So, Uh, I mean, if this is the way of me becoming slightly competent, I'll take that. There you go. Yeah, no, it'd be great to have you. Well, hopefully maybe maybe you'll see me in the pool sometime soon but tom it's great to have you again on the show today um so we're coming into the final show of the term and it is our final news in 60 seconds of this term and it's fair to say there's been a lot take place over the last week so to try and put it into 60 seconds is not easy but this show doesn't do what is easy so we're gonna do it so in three two one so very quick content warning for violence before we start. Um, the death of Sarah Everard was extremely tragic last week. Um, found, she was found dead in um, Kent. Um, Metropolitan Police Officer Wayne Cousins was arrested. He's appearing in court now on trial in October over her death. Um, Metropolitan Police, there was a lot of controversy over a vigil that was held in Clapham Common on Saturday. The Metropolitan Police breaking it up over coronavirus regulations. Um, Cresta Dick, the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, said she's staying on has had to support the Prime Minister Home Secretary, but a lot of controversy. A lot of discussion now being held over the role of men and women in terms of helping women feel safe on the streets. A lot of other news, of course, the coronavirus vaccination programme continues to go strong in the UK, but the AstraZeneca vaccine has caused a lot of controversy. Um, 40 cases of blood clots in Europe. It has been now suspended. We'll be talking about that very shortly. And also, Prince Philip has left hospital after four weeks. He's been reunited with the Queen two weeks after his heart surgery and that is just a snapshot of the news in the last week it's fair to say i I don't know if prince philip 
within the hospital. We don't know how much he knows of what has been going on over the last week. I wonder if he told the nurses to get the Harry and Meghan interview, especially and get his TV paid for in the hospital. Did, did Prince Philip have to pay for his TV? In the hospital because technically oh, I, I think technically we're paying for his tv that, yeah that's what i was gonna say so, I, I remember I, I spent a week in hospital when i was six and i racked up a tv bill of about i think 150 pounds that week so i think i think if that is the expense of the taxpayer and prince philip is watching to pay for the interview I don't know. Perhaps this is a ch- another chance for us to go into debate the royal finances but that's not what i want to talk about now I want to talk about the AstraZeneca vaccine because it has been, it's fair to say, quite the controversy over the last couple of months. Of course, a big part of the UK's vaccination programme. And indeed, we are nearing now reaching 50% of the population. Indeed, um, over 50s are now getting their vaccination letters being sent to them, making us on course to vaccinate all over 50s by the end of March as intended by the government, which is great news because that means both my parents will hopefully get their vaccines before the end of the month and one massive sigh of relief there. But in Europe today, um, we've seen gradually over the last week, a lot of the AstraZeneca vaccine um, distribution get suspended in Europe. A very wry um, smile from Odysseus there, I think kind of describes the situation because, um, so blood clots, this is what the controversy is. So there's been less than 40 cases of blood clots, um, but many points, so the German medical agency have said that this is higher in the normal within 14 days, within seven days rather than 14 days is the level they're expecting to see at the moment. But the British uh, medical agency have declared the, the vaccine continues to be safe. Um, the Italian medical agency, Italy is one of the countries that spent the vaccine. Indeed, pretty much every country within the EU, apart from the Belgians, the Greeks, I believe, simply because I think of the need, the stressing the necessity of getting the virus out, and of course, the UK, because it's such an important part of our program over here, they've suspended it. But the European Medical Agency, loads of countries where the virus, the vaccine has been suspended, have said that it's safe to use and the blood clots are at no more normal level. The Italian Medical Agency have said that this was a political decision. Odysseus, let's start off with you. Do you agree with their assessment? Yeah, I'd say it's a it's a political decision because essentially the amount of doses that have been administered in the UK and of course we don't hear much about the US sort of I mean because they have the AstraZeneca vaccine as well in the US and that hasn't really been uh, that large of a discussion. Uh, with the amount of doses that have been administered, you really do not notice any adverse uh, health effects, and I think that the studies that have been undertaken that show abnormal blood clotting. I, I'm not quite sure how, how useful those studies are at the moment. Uh, and okay, perhaps there are concerns about blood clotting. What, this is obviously more dangerous to people who, who were prone to blood clots or, or to older, older people who with a blood clot, they, they could suffer much more unintended consequences from that. So I don't see a reason to cut off the AstraZeneca vaccine completely. Uh, I mean, in the case when vaccination is so important. Um, can I put this to you, perhaps, that do you think that because obviously there's been a lot of a vaccine row in the last couple of months between the EU and AstraZeneca, do you think that row has sort of influenced this decision that they've taken to suspend use of the vaccine? Because it, they've still got plenty of supplies that these countries are buying in. I think I think it's got to be it's got to be a factor. I mean, 
the row was so public and it was so vicious and there any excuse i think um to suspend it they they would be looking for so it's really come at a good time well or a bad time it depends on how depends which point of view you're looking at it from but i think that the i think that it's going to whip up fear and i think that it's just it's very I just think it's going to yeah, whip up a fear that is going to make it hard for people to trust which body that, cause they're obviously saying very different things. And I think that it's going to whip a fear that mirrors that of what we saw surrounding the MMR vaccine back, you know, when I was a baby and things like that. And I think that it's crucial that we have this vaccine in order to control the virus. And I think that it's a very dangerous game that they're playing. Well, vaccine uptake has been a particular concern in Europe, especially compared to the UK, where obviously not only have been people, we have we had a high rate of people taking vaccinations, but also in terms of people being offered the vaccine, there have been a lot less cases in the UK of people refusing to take the vaccine, particularly the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, Enoch, is this the latest nail in the coffin for um, low vaccine uptake in Europe? Uh, well, I mean, I, I don't see how they come back. This is this is bad. This is very bad. I think the way country reacted to it, it is political. But I don't think it's like this is political in the sense that it's about the fight between England and the AstraZeneca vaccine. I think it is largely political in the sense that these are, these are countries who are looking at their very low vaccine, very vaccine-skeptical population and going, if we now force them to take this vaccine, we're going to lose the next election. We're going to lose whatever fight for the fight's coming up next. Um I think there's a mistake. It's a massive mistake in a human sense, in a, in a moral sense. I, I can't see how you justify this. Well, it's interesting you mentioned elections because, of course, the CDU had some regional elections in Germany over the weekend. Didn't go too well for Angela Merkel's party. Not a region they were expecting to win necessarily, but not very good results for them there. So perhaps, perhaps there's a little bit of prelude coming from that. Well, um, We've got a lot more to discuss in the show. We'll be moving on now to looking at policing in the UK. What reforms need to be done? But firstly, this. Music. Welcome back to another week of Psychedemics. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Vinny Show. You are listening to Rockstar. I'm backstage with Casper. We're starting to get all Hello, guys. Hello. There's a team spirit going oh, on behind it. You're all rooting for each other. Oh, yeah. Good job. Yeah. Art. I love the idea of popular films being nominated for Oscars. I just think the style that Marvel has made has just mm. put them like way above. Speech. You must get to the Mass and Stats building using three different modes of transport. Oh my god, there's a trolley. It's really all about like educating, networking, and sharing our stories. I think the SU has a really uh, important role in engaging students with politics. News. Good evening and welcome to the big decision. Ben and Larissa tied. This is your student radio station. This is Raw 1250. 51 a.m. Your student radio station on 12:51 a.m. This is your role. Now, um, policing in the UK has become a source of controversy, it's fair to say, over the last few years, but particularly over the last year um a very quick content warning for violence we will be discussing that um within this section and i, I guess let's start off with the events of last week um 
as you mentioned very previously, Sarah Everard um, was killed um, or, or was found dead in um, Woods in Kent last week. Um, she had been missing for a week previously and a Metropolitan Police Officer, Wayne Cousins, was arrested and charged with her murder um, linked to that. And as we said earlier, he goes on trial in October. And the police have come under a lot of controversy with regards to a vigil that was held on Saturday night in Clapham Common. Now, the police um, had said under coronavirus regulations, they weren't allowed to permit um, this protest. Indeed, protests have previously been allowed under COVID lockdown regulations, though have been, um, from the November lockdown, were removed from um, what was permitted as a large controllable gathering. That went, and so that was why the police said that they could not allow this vigil to take place. the vigil took place sort of unofficially on Saturday night and the police stepped in. And as so you, you only have to look at some of the pictures to really see the allegations that the police were acting too heavy handed. Um, Enoch, what, what was your first reaction to the vigil on Saturday night? I, I obviously, I, I knew about the concerns of the COVID concerns of the vigil going in, but I, from what I could see, it was all conducted very safely. And so I thought, you know, this is a, good, necessary way to mourn the death of this person, the impact it's having on the country right now. And when I saw the police response, I was, I was astonished. I really, I really didn't think we would see that kind of response to what, like, to some extent, like, I understand that response to a protest during a pandemic. I, to some extent, even though I, I generally believe the right of free protest, even in the middle, maybe not be right, but it's, it's something you have to let people do. Um, but just for a bit, they were people just laying flowers and they were just, they were standing. It, just, it, it blew my mind. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Yeah. And it's important to say just very quickly as well. Um, we're not covering on this show um, the Sarah Everard death in too much death, nor are we um, discussing um, the topics of violence against women in this show today. But on Insight on Monday earlier on in the week, um, Enoch hosted a fantastic um, panel discussion on that. Um, it is on Raw News's Mixed Cloud, so please do check that out. Um, Tom, if I can come to you now, because the vigil, it's fair to say, was certainly um, quite... There had been this a lot of this discussion, it had been had with many protests over the last year, which is, should we be allowed to have these protests um, during a pandemic? Now, those who will have been at the vigil will say, well, the situation was such that we really needed to be gathering in person to commemorate to commemorate Sarah. I mean, what, what's your re- what's your reaction really to that? Where where do you sit with that debate? I think that there are certain issues, such as this one, that are of extreme importance, and I think that people do have the right, as you know, was saying, to protest even through a pandemic. I think that what there needs to be, however, is caution because I mean. At the same time as I completely support um, the message and the protest in itself, there is a deadly virus going around, as we know, for the last year. Um, And I think there just needs to be caution and around that subject and just the care not to spread the virus further unnecessarily, because I think that then, you know, the police are going to start looking at the vigil as they did and kind of, it just makes everyone a bit more on edge. And I think that that kind of has led to the problem that we saw at the vigil itself. 
the, the police have come under, it's fair to say, a, quite a lot of criticism of their handling of the pandemic. And one of the accusations that um, has been levied, at them, particularly by those who perhaps are more sceptical of lockdowns, but indeed by many sort of rights organisations more generally, is that the police have been given these vastly significant powers, powers that they've never really had before to act throughout the pandemic. And that the, the situation has been they've been given these powers and that in many cases they've perhaps gone too far in enforcing these powers. Um, Odysseus, if I could come to you quickly, perhaps just very quickly, perhaps for the Greek experience here, because you've said that in Greece you have something we don't have in the UK where you literally have to leave your house, you have to have a note, you have to yeah. you know, say exactly what you're doing. We don't have that in the UK. But do you think that in itself, what, what do you make of the perhaps the policing response in the UK when you have something like that, which you could argue is more draconian? Yeah, definitely. There's no comparison when it comes to the level of draconianism uh, in the UK compared to Greece. I think that uh, UK residents are far luckier in the sense that uh, they have, um, the UK government has sort of done what I see as a very delicate dance around rights and restrictions, uh, whereas the Greek government has just gone directly to us and said, no, you can only go out for these six reasons. And if you can't prove it to a police officer that you're out for one of these six reasons, you will be fined or arrested or detained and uh, there will be consequences. And on the protest issue specifically, uh, there has been an outright ban on any sort of protest uh, in Greece since November. And uh, this was widely criticized by Amnesty International and other rights groups. And as Amnesty International uh, has also criticized the new policing bill that we'll be talking about in very much the same way that uh, these bills and also the political strategy to blame protests for spreading the virus is is a poor way to handle a general problem with of the virus is that okay in Greece we had protests in Athens uh, a couple of times uh, that could have possibly spread the virus there's no debate about that uh, but that doesn't explain the spread of the virus in uh, in northern Greece or in the islands for example but yet you still have the government uh, sort of putting all the blame on opposition parties for supporting protests which is is a is a dangerous line to follow uh, and i think on the on on the on the vigil case that we saw in in, in Clapham common that uh, the police was way too heavy handed and that with increased police presence there will be increased protests protesting the right to protest uh, which will ultimately, even following this flawed theory, lead to a more higher spread of, uh, of COVID. Well, let's come on now to that policing bill that you mentioned, because this has been the source of real controversy um, over the last over the last week, and particularly really, I think, since the vigil, I think heightens a lot of the concerns that people have about this piece of legislation. Um, some of the measures in the policing bills, just run through some of them quickly. So... Um, there are significant limits being placed on protests. So for example, you now have to give specific time, start and finish time of protests. Um, you have to um, now, if you cause a serious noise or disturbance, you could be fined two and a half thousand pounds, potentially 10 years in jail as well. Um, this has received a lot of criticism, um, mainly within opposition parties, but also from some more libertarians as well. Um, Tom, what's your first reaction, I guess, to this policing bill? It goes to a second reading vote. Uh, well, it was held in a second reading vote yes, uh, today in Parliament, but it's expected to pass that. W what, what do you make of it? 
Oh, I think I think that's really interesting because it does it does give. I was looking at it, it does give some quite you know quite dramatic new powers for protests that, and I think that the powers that it gives, especially the the noise one, is quite open to interpretation, and I don't think that it gives a spe- gives the specifics that might be needed to in order to regulate a protest i think that the police who have already been criticized for the way that they've acted at this protest and throughout the pandemic i think it gives them you know it's gonna it's gonna bring them under fire they're gonna they're gonna use this power and you know people are gonna say that they've used it incorrectly and i think that it's just going to open a whole new can of worms if you like about their power there's a very interesting political argument here. I want to talk to you quickly about this, Enoch. Um, in terms of the specificity, I think Tom drew, drew upon it there, that there's a lot of questions over how vague some of the language is in this piece of legislation. What is a serious annoyance, for example? Indeed, Schedule 22 of the Coronavirus Act 2020, I was reading it earlier, and the stuff that it had there on protest was extremely vague. And we've seen the controversy that has erupted. Um, Steve Baker, of course, one of the uh, most prominent libertarians within the Conservative Party, has said that he supports many of the the provisions of the bill for things like tougher sentencing. But he says that on things like the protests, he says it's important to allow people to have a right to peaceful protest. This language is too vague and could potentially um, infringe that. And so whilst he'll be voting for the bill, he says when it comes to committee stage, he'll want to get a much more of a focus on trying to get more exact language there. Do you think for those who are opposed to the bill, perhaps that is a resolution that could be considered? Oh, I think if you're in the Conservative Party and you want to oppose the bill, I think after that we've seen the few attempts of rebellion in the past year, this is the very safest thing you can do without really causing issues for the party. Um, my one concern is that if you go to if it goes to committee and they don't they don't make it I can't, I'm going to say this word, um, they, they don't remove the vagueness enough, um, then it's going to, get, it's going to back, come back to Parliament be voted on again, and it, it probably will pass. People will say, oh, well, it's addressed most of my issues, even though there's still real fundamental flaws in there. And I, I, I just, I, I just, I think something like this maybe needs to be sent away and have the protest stuff ripped out and just the sentencing stuff left in, and that's what Steve Baker's really focused on. Um, so otherwise, I don't see how this is a good bill at all. Well, I think certainly there's been a lot of criticism towards the bill naturally. And of course, students, we've seen um, Warwick students have been very critical of this bill. And there was a protest taking place literally as we're recording the show right now. um, A lot of the provisions of the bill have been criticised by students, including the fact that student protests um, could be harmed by some of these measures in the future. Um, In particular, the idea that a protest is supposed to it's supposed to cause action it's supposed to cause a disturbance that's the point of it because then if you're causing that disturbance people get an awareness of your cause and people are forced to respond um odysseus one of the motivations behind some of these measures was um Cresta dick asking the government following um 2019 following the extinction rebellion protests that she wanted stronger measures in place to deal with actions like St- extinctions rebellions which did at times grind, grind parts of London to a halt. Do you think this is a reasonable step towards dealing with that? 
no, I, I wouldn't say that it's a reasonable step because they in this this bill tries to to bunch in uh, solutions to several legal problems uh, that the UK has the backlog of of cases in the courts that needs to be addressed uh, and also I feel that it's it's influenced too much by sort of more recent political uh, events and that may make it difficult for people to look at this bill objectively especially in light of the of the vigil and the police violence there uh, was the extinction rebellion back in 2019 causing significant problems in london yeah i mean i think we remember the scenes of, of protesters on top of uh, of trains and stopping people from uh, getting to work but I think that was ultimately dealt with. I mean, there were there were some protests and they were dealt with. And uh, perhaps I think a better review into what the police could have done should uh, go through. But uh, this bill is, it tries to address too many things at once. And as you said, it, it does raise a lot of concerns about how vague it tries to, how vaguely it tries to address those issues. Well, Again, we obviously have second reading taking place in Parliament this week. It'll be interesting to see whether revisions are made in committee stage, whether any revisions are made in the Lords. I don't think this will be the last we hear of that story. Um, we'll be back very shortly. We'll be talking about GB News, the newest kid on the British broadcasting scene. That coming up very shortly. But firstly, this. Looking for a bite to eat at the Warwick SU? Daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new Canopy. Karaoke, pub grub and lager on top at the Dirty Duck. Salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven. Or a latte link up at Curiosity. There's something to suit any taste and any budget. And if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room, start it right at Tea Bar. With speciality cocktails. Best stop prices. And our expertly stocked bar overlooking the piazza. At Warwick SU Outlets, there's something to satisfy every taste. Your breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Your student radio station on 12.51am. This is your Raw. GB News is coming to the British broadcasting scene by the end of the month, um, Andrew Neil gave an interview to Amal Rajan on the BBC podcast on the media show. Do recommend you give that a listen. Some really interesting insights, not just into Andrew Neil's um, broadcasting career, but also onto GB News and his, uh, his decoupling with the BBC, we'll call it. But yes, GB News is coming before the end of the month. We've sort of heard a few trickles as to what we expect from it, but we really got more confirmation from Andrew Neil about some of the things that we can expect from GB News. Um, he said it's going to be opinion-led on the style of MSNBC, Fox News, so no rolling news. He himself will have a weekly primetime show, takes place um, between 8 and 9 p.m. throughout the week. Um, there will also be things including Woke Watch, which will be, I guess, challenging woke um, within British society. He, he not, my my panellists have all given a, a reaction to that one. There will also be Media Watch as well, which Andrew Neil has said will be GB News um, commenting upon the reporting of other media. He is also cautioned to say, including what GB News when it gets itself wrong as well. And that's really the highlights, but he says mainly opinion that, of course, we don't know a lot about all of the anchors. Um, as far as you know, Colin Brazier has been confirmed. Tom Harwood is a political correspondent. Um, Darren McCaffrey of Euronews is the political editor. 
Um, former Brexit Party MEPs, Alexandra Phillips, um, she's got a show, um, Michelle Jubry as well, though we've heard many rumours. Um, he shut down rumours about Judy Hartley Brewer, Nick Ferrari, although Piers Morgan, he has said he would bring over to the network, of course, after his departure from Good Morning Britain. Let's see what our panel think about um, GB News. Um, Enoch, we, we've, we've had many a discussion about yeah. GB News over the last year. Now, now you know a bit more from Andrew Neil last week. Um, I've got to ask you, are you looking forward to it? I I, I can't, I'm not, I'm not going to pretend this just happened an awful idea. This could be an awful news station. I don't know why this is, hap- why is this happening. Why does this need to happen? What Andrew Neil has said is that he's seeking to represent those that he feels aren't represented by, well, he says the BBC, ITV, Sky. He says that they lean as different shades of centre-left. And what the plan with GB News is, is to have something that represents voters that he sees them outside this centre-left metropolitan London bubble and appeals to the likes of the, I think he gave the examples of listeners in Dewsbury and York, places within the north of the country who typically, you know, if you go on something like Question Time, tended, he, when he gave that example, tended to go quite heavily against a lot of the guests of BBC on. That was what he said during that interview. Um, is that something you'd agree with, perhaps, as a mission statement for GB News? Right. I think my central problem with this thesis is that I, I can accept, actually, that people that work at the BBC tend to be centre-left. I, the media, it, It's just true about the media. It, it, it does, they tend to be either centrist or centre-left. Um, but at the end of the day, the BBC's core mission, the core desire of most people working there is to get to what the, the actual facts of the matter and report those to people. They don't always do it right. They're not always great at it sometimes. But, you know, they, that is a general core mission. I oppose a new station that starts its foundational mission as getting my opinion across. That that's my problem. If you want to say, if you want to be like, let's try and fix, let's try and find people from a more diverse ideological field to try and report the facts because that will change how stories are chosen. That that change all that stuff. I think that's perfectly acceptable as an approach for a news a news department. It's honestly, it's probably, probably a better one than just you know pretending there's no bias there at all. Um, but when you start saying my critical thing is to get my pain across to you and then the facts that come afterwards, I just don't I don't agree with it. Well, Andrew Neil made the point that it's governed that the station will be governed strictly by Ofcom, and so that will deal with the impartiality side of things. Now we don't know exactly how that is going to work, whether it's going to be a sort of this week style thing where perhaps we get the return of the great partnership of Diane Abbott and Michael Portillo. That would be great. Anyway. Um, Tom, I want to ask you now, because I guess, obviously, what, um, firstly, what's your opinion about um, the British broadcasting scene at the moment? And Andrew Neil made a particular point about there's a real gap in the market for an MSNBC Fox News style um, opinion led show on TV broadcasting. Do you agree with him there? So I think that at the moment, yeah, there's it's definitely not as diverse as it could be. And I think that there definitely is the opportunity to diversify the existing broadcasting networks that we have, as you know, we're saying, but I think that it, I think that it is just that the GB news is trying to find a gap in the market. They want to get views and, you know, that's, that's what they're preying on. They want people to want to watch a slightly controversial show and, I just think that it sets a dangerous precedent. I think people are gonna people are gonna be listening to these opinions, take them on board as facts, not read more into it, 
and just accept that that is what they should think. And I think that it's going to divide and accentuate the divide of the of the north and south that you you can see um and also at the same time the political spectrum and i think that i just think it's i can just see it causing problems i just yeah i just don't think it's a good idea well there is i guess a precedent for this style of broadcasting in the uk odysseus um lbc and talk radio have very opinion-led um radio shows now, one I guess that you could say with LBC in particular, there is a pronounced balance between left and right. You have James O'Brien as, you know, a very prominent figure on the left on LBC, whereas you would have someone like Nick Ferrari, a very prominent figure from the right on LBC. Um, GB News, now, we, they haven't heard many figures from the left at the moment, but surely even if, if it is all figures from the right or the centre-right who are presenting these shows... Andrew Neil has said, regardless of political leanings, he still expects people to do their jobs, to present the news with following the impartiality guidelines set by Ofcom. Do you think that can be possible? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I have to echo what Enoch and Tom said. I'm not really confident about the initial purpose of GB News from the get-go, but I'm not, uh, you know, I, I don't think that it's something necessarily to be tremendously afraid of because of the way that uh, media is regulated in the UK, specifically by Ofcom. So when Andrew Neil did say that, um, I was fairly confident, although I'm not likely to be a regular patron or viewer of GB News. Um, I don't think it's something necessarily to be tremendously worried about because opinionated news does reach uh, British uh, listeners and readers already through newspapers and through uh, various other media. So I don't think it's something that can be avoided by, let's say, preventing GB News. It's already here and it's been in the UK for a while now. Uh, I think the best thing that, from a policy perspective, is to try and make sure that Ofcom regulations aren't uh, bypassed or changed significantly um, in order to accommodate uh, GB News. That's the only thing that I'd be worried about is future changes to regulation like that, which would enable it to be like the Fox News of, uh, of the UK. Well, let's put that question very, very, very quickly, because we are very short on time now in this section. Um I guess one word answer, yes or no, will, will GB News be the British Fox News, as many critics have suggested? Andrew Neil himself has denied. Odysseus, let's start off with you. No, I don't think it's going to be the next Fox News. Tom? Yes, I think it will be, to get views. Okay, and Enoch, you've got I the just, swing vote here. I just don't think that's the media atmosphere of the UK. I don't think, I don't think we could have Fox News yet. I don't think it's possible. Not yet, at least. Maybe... Maybe in five years' time, we'll see where GB News is. But I don't, from where we stand today, I don't think it's going to work if you British Fox News. Well, it's important to say Fox News isn't the only opinion-heavy-led site in the US. Of course, there is MSNBC as well. So could this be Fox, GB News, Fox, MSNBC? I don't know if it want any of that comparison. But um, that's it for the end of the first hour of the show. said a lot about to come up. But um, before we finish, um, I just wanted to quickly pay my respects to Murray Walker, the legendary British Formula One commentator who died age 97 last week. He was an immense presence on his sport. I was sad to have never grown up to have listened to him, but 
certainly I can talk to anyone who watched Formula One throughout the 80s and the 90s and spoke of really the passion he had for his sport and for really the passion he gave people into that sport as well. So rest in peace, Murray. Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station. Let us start off with the term just gone, term two. Um, I guess it's been a very difficult term. Obviously, we went home at Christmas not expecting to go back into another lockdown. I'm not expecting, I certainly wasn't expecting to be home um, for all of the term. And it's fair to say, I know many students have said it's been a very challenging time. And I guess really, I want to start off going around to each of my guests and really just asking how this term has been because I would say I think I found this term more difficult than the first one because for term one at least I was in Leamington at least for half of the term I could still go to places and do things with people whereas this term it's fair to say has certainly felt a lot more isolating um what does my panel think Tom I'm gonna start off with you well obviously we went back we went back for Christmas and we were not expecting another lockdown. We went into tier, well, my area went into tier four quite quickly. And then the idea that we were going to see our families over Christmas was taken away very swiftly. And it just became quite an isolated Christmas. And then that was kind of echoed by coming back to Leamington. And, you know, apart from my housemates, we haven't been able to see anyone. And we just kind of had to get on with our work. And that is about it. Like, it's just been, yeah, as you say, isolating and just difficult. But I'm very excited for the next term. Yeah, I think we, we can all be a bit optimistic. I think that's what's really carrying people through at the moment is that, yeah, it's not been great this term. I think that's a, kind of a general consensus, but there is hope for the something better on the horizon um Enoch um obviously you've been fairly busy with Raw throughout this term but would you give me your general synopsis your general overview of how you found term two um cold miserable uninspiring <laughs> and that's just the weather um the seminars which <laughs> have been a disaster I think uh or, or and it's no one's fault I, I have to stress no one's fault except of course a government, but I know people argue me about that. Um, you know, the university, I think, um, this, the similar teachers have done the best they can, lectures have done the best they can. Um, in person, it's just, in person teaching is so vital, I think, to learning. It just doesn't work as well online. And the fresh couple with fact, I'm not in the ideal learning circumstances, and just the misery that's become so clear in lockdown three. I think lockdown two wasn't pleasant. I think being back in university and the, the ones being one month kept me going through it. Um, lockdown one was very weird, but lockdown three, I think, has been solid. How miserable it is! This sort of slog through week after week of nothing changing. It's. I hope you'll track what I was saying. It's been a bad term. It's been a bad time. Do you know what I have realised? I've really missed over this term, and you can call me sad. I've really missed the library. You know what? Yes, I, I, I have. Especially when you, you go to a, a seminar and they're like, "Well, we want you to read this book." But it's not available online through our university. So good luck. It's like, what, what, do you, what am I supposed to do then? What's where are we supposed to go from here? What's the point of this? Yeah, I mean, actually, the library. I didn't realize how much I I, I wanted it. Both is a place where you can get books, which I mean, I guess is its general purpose. And actually, how I realized how useful that was 
but also it's just kind of like a study space as well i didn't realize actually just how productive i am when i'm in the library and i've come home and i it's at times it's been like trying to like do my essay reading and i i always like to say it's the social pressure of being in the library where you're expected to do work and people will look at you if you're not doing work you're like the sort of you're very suspicious figure you're you're hogging someone else's space in the library for someone who's more deserving of it so you feel you have to actually be productive in there and I, I don't know maybe i'm just introducing a completely psychological layer to the library that just doesn't exist and doesn't merit existence but that that's what i feel about it um odysseus of course as well i we've, we've mentioned it a lot actually i think by now <laughs> if people don't know that you've been in greece this term um I, I i i don't know if they've been listening to the show properly at all but um as an international student in particular there was um, an article that went out in the book last week that really spoke of the particularly isolating experiences that international students have had. Um, what what have you really been finding that? Have you, as someone who's been abroad, completely disconnected from not even just the university, but the UK itself, is that something you would agree with? Yeah, it's, it's pretty tough. I mean, uh, I, I, I spent the first lockdown of term three, uh, last year when this whole thing was uh, sort of starting out and everyone was caught off guard, if you remember that. And I spent that uh, in Turkey because my parents work there. Uh, and that was a really long uh, sort of term three and then summer as well, being sort of completely disconnected from mates I've made at university to UK life and all that uh, stuff that I'd just begun to adjust to as a EU student. Then come back for term one. It's pretty foggy. Uh, I the adjustment was a little difficult, um, and then I had a, a slight feeling that we might not be able to return for term two. Uh, I think naturally, because sometimes uh, I might be a bit of a pessimist, so I, I was a bit worried. I'm like, oh, what what if they don't let us come back for term two? So when I came, I came back uh, home here to Athens, and yeah, things just in in that regard, as an international student, kind of went a bit downhill. And uh, I think it was today was probably the first day in the whole uh, lockdown process over the past year where I've just kind of I've just completely fed up with it. Uh, I'm, I'm really, you know, up, up to, up to here with lockdown because it's also a bit worrying for international students. I think you have to consider to return to the UK and to, to be, to sort of not really know what's going to happen there. And there's a lot of social anxieties that go with that as well, you know, have their friends changed that sort of stuff. So there's worry about staying here. There's a worry about going back. It's uh, overall, yeah, not a fun time. I, I feel that's just a general reflection of the last year. Just not a fun time, really. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that, that, I guess let's, let's talk about term three now, because I guess both a time of immense optimism, because, you know, society's starting to reopen. I can get my hair cut. I can go to the pub. It's all good days again. But we also have essays and exams. And I guess really... As a question now to each panel, before we go back to everything opening up, because we've been talking about that quite a bit, do you feel that you've had enough support with essays and exams during term three, given the circumstances that we've had? And do you feel that you are able to perform your best um, next term? So I'll go in the same order that we did last time. Tom, let's start off with you. 
Well, I mean, for term three, I'm not sure I'm the best person to ask about this because um, the modules that I do, I actually only have two um, exams and one essay. Um, very, very lucky. Yes. Um, it's been this term that's been the brutal one, if I'm honest. And if I judge it off this term, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that we've had all the support that we could have done. Um, I think that there needed to be in place maybe more sort of leniency on the deadlines. And they gave us a week. They, they said at the start of the term, oh, we're going to give you an extra week to do your essays. Now, that I don't know about any of you guys, but that doesn't particularly work for me because instead of factoring that in as you know an extension, I just see that as the new due date. So suddenly all the essays are due at the same time, but just a week later. Um, so I definitely think that they kind of just have given us small things and just gone, yep, that's enough. There you go. Um, and like an essay I've had recently, I was, you know, talking to my tutor about it. And I just felt that, you know, having not have done, having not have done in-face Per, uh, personal like teaching um they just weren't as helpful as i needed to, them to be and i didn't want to you know badger them get asking every single question but i just felt like they could have been a bit more understanding of the situation that we're going through yeah do you know i totally understand your point with like deadlines not do you know it's the one reason i've never taken a self-certification because it moves my deadlines and i feel i've got, I've got other stuff to do <laughs> It kind of gets me a bit distracted from that and everything just kind of builds up. So I can I can see your point there, definitely. Um, Enoch, obviously, we've talked about a lot of um, mitigation things on this term. Words like safety nets, for example, has been a very common one. I mean, do you think on in hindsight we needed something more like that now? Or do you think we're in an OK enough position with the mitigation we've got? I, I think... Setting aside myself for a second, I think there's some people out there who definitely, definitely needed um, a safety net. I th this term, I've heard a lot more stories about personal tragedy this term than I do generally. I, I, I know that going through the medication process of personal tragedy is absolutely horrendous. Um, I think the, the university just need an approach that put more on, on kindness, especially in a time like this when everyone's going through an absolute, you know, an, an absolute nightmare. I think in terms of the, you know, the way things uh, personal teachers did, um, seminar teachers did, lecturers did, they were all very willing to help. It's just not harder to reach them right now in the pandemic than it would be in person. And that's not, again, that's not their fault. It's not like they can suddenly make magically their fingers and suddenly I can just walk to their office again. It's not their fault, but it is just a fact of what's going on. No, absolutely. I think the, set, the Warwick staff, certainly from my experience, have been doing their best, but they are very much restricted by the tools that they have you know, throughout the pandemic. Um, Odysseus, same, same question to you. Um, do you feel ready? Do you feel you've had adequate support for next term? Uh, I'd like to believe I feel ready. And uh, I think that's the only option uh, we have, just to believe in, in in our ability to at least try and do well, because otherwise so it's, 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 just, all, it's just defeat. I was going to say for a second, <laughs> it was Northern therapy, as my parents used to call it. Just tough it up and get on with life. That, that, that's oh, uh, I think things could have definitely been better, <laughs> yeah, but I, it's just what we've been dealt so far. So, you know, 
you know yeah. just cross your fingers and try your best really we we can we can only really go with what we've got and i think yeah. that's the thing for next term but some things we have got that i think are very encouraging is the return of the su commercial facilities and the return of some potential fun into our lives the su introduced a roadmap on monday um some of the things included within that roadmap included the reopening of bread oven and curiosity in mid-april um the reopening of the dirty duck in may t-bar at it as yet undetermined day and week nine and ten pop and an end of week nine school days how excited are we all for this tom even just you saying it it just makes me you know it just makes me excited i i cannot wait uh, i know that there's going to be an insane rush for tickets and you know I'm just glad that I bought an annual pass last year. I know, I know that, you know, I'll get a lot of hate for just being able to just waltz in, but I'm so glad I, I could not miss that. And even, even being able to go onto campus and, you know, meeting up with people and going to places like curiosity, it just, I, I just feel like until you find out it's coming back, you haven't realized how much you miss it. It really just does like it does give a glimmer of hope and i think that's just all we need right now no absolutely and of course speaking on the annual pass if you like me got yourself seven the first seven free pops and two school days completely free because i believe that was what they gave us last year on the annual pass yeah i think it was something like that and honestly i just yeah i can't wait for that yeah you see if i if i don't have to book tickets because this i've my name's already on the guest list i'll feel pretty happy um Enoch, what was your reaction? Are you looking forward to seeing Disco Dave back in his natural element? I will. I will miss seeing Disco Dave get drunk on his live stream in his kitchen with his um, I think his TV still on playing Shrek Two that one time. Um, <laughs> but I, yeah, pop won't be the same after you've seen that. Only when you see Disco Dave take his shirt off, take his shirt off for absolutely no reason, and like halfway to midnight. Um, but I, I, yeah, I, I will. I'm excited. I am cautiously optimistic. I don't. I think some of these days may push, be pushed back, but I, I am cautiously optimistic. I think we can hit them. Um, all going well. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to sort of work out at the moment, picturing in my head. Obviously, if we don't, we we don't know what the plans going to be with things like testing in nightclubs, and we imagine that will be the case, or things like vaccine passports. But I can't imagine Baywatch ever being COVID secure. For starters, I can't imagine you know circling course everyone wants to get back to do a circle and i don't know if we'll be able to no, do that nothing in the su is any any disease secure you've been to the toilets in that building <laughs> when it's a nightclub <laughs> very 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 true i mean so someone i remember someone famously wants to put on work fashions um that if you you know you, you do anything on the floor in um in the copper rooms if you ever you know when spillage is leakage and you've ever licked off the floor in the copper rooms you have no excuse not to take a COVID vaccine. Um, Odysseus, now obviously that you've got to, when you arrive back in the UK, you will have to do 10 days worth of quarantine to be able to come to your week nine and 10 pop. But is that a worthy trade-off, do you think? Oh yeah, definitely. I think I'll uh, I'll be taking that into account when I'll be uh, coming back. Uh, although I am not only a cautious optimist, I think I'm more of a conscious pessimist. I really don't think it's going to happen. Don't take away our little bit of fun. We're on a okay, positive okay. note at the moment. Sorry, Good sorry, vibes. sorry. 
Sorry, but what I do want to see from the university is hopefully more information about vaccinations. But that's another subject. Uh, am I looking forward to pop uh, and the reopening of SU outlets, even though I might not be able to enjoy the SU outlets uh, very soon? Yes, absolutely. I do miss uh, a good evening out at the Dirty Duck and, and, uh, and a nice old pop. So, you know, of course, I'm looking forward to it, Karen. Yeah, couldn't sum up all the better. All I need is Casbah, Kelsey's to reopen as well. And my life is made up. I have... I've missed Eliminator quite a bit. I circled with Eliminator last year, which was probably a mistake a few times, I think, by the time you get to the end of the night. But yeah, I'm missing both of those places as well as the SU. So I feel hopefully by the start of next term, we know a bit more, be able to report it on the new shows. Be very nice. Anyway, um, we'll be back with a slightly heavier subject of um, the Defence Review very shortly. But firstly, this... Music. Welcome back to another week of Psychedemics. Hello, everybody. You're listening to The Vinny Show. You are listening to Rockstar. I'm Your student radio station on 12.51am. This is your role. Now, um, foreign policy has been a quite a contentious topic within the UK over the last few years. There have been a lot of calls for um, tougher stances, um, particularly towards China, towards Russia. And we've seen over the last decades with the return, many people, many commentators have said a great power competition, that many have argued for a pivot in the UK's foreign policy position. Well, yesterday, the Defence Review um, was published and Boris Johnson gave a statement in the House of Commons about this. Um, some of the key takes of this have been a real pivot in the UK's foreign policy positions. In particular, um, the reversal on Britain's nuclear warheads. Now, it was supposed to drop to 180 under the plans agreed a decade ago. They've now been told to be increased to 260. There's also a pivot towards the Indo-Pacific region as well, plus much more of a challenge to do with dealing with China. Of course, China is a very interesting one, been a lot of source controversy over the last year, something we'll come on to. Um, the report still makes very clear that Russia is the um, biggest threat it's seen to the UK at this moment in time. It's also said that it believes that a, it is highly likely that a terrorist group will launch a successful chemical, biological or nuclear attack within the UK by 2030. And the new counterterrorism responses need to be set up in response to this. Some other changes, though, particularly over foreign aid, the cuts that were announced last year are being reversed. The UK will meet its 0.7% of GDP obligation um, to foreign aid. But there is a lot that we can really discuss here. So let's start off, I guess, with the biggest source of controversy 
from this, which is the nuclear weapons. Um, the UK had previously committed to reducing its nuclear stockpile. It's now gone back on that. Um, Odysseus, what, what's your response to that? Uh, I'm really disappointed to see in the Prime Minister's statement uh, to the House on Tuesday, uh, him not following his predecessors in committing to a reduction in the nuclear stockpile. I think as the world sort of moves away from uh, nuclear weapons, I mean, with exceptions in the case of Iran, perhaps, and uh, North Korea, definitely, uh, I don't think uh, that it, it's wise to to go back on that sort of precedent to reduce a nuclear stockpile. Uh, I think a denuclearized world is ultimately better for all of us. I, of course, recognize the defense asset that nuclear weapons do have in any nation's arsenal. But I think those times are moving uh, sort of towards the past now and... Um, uh, I was really disappointed uh, not to hear uh, from Boris Johnson about that. Well, the, the point of nuclear weapons is an interesting one, because obviously, as you mentioned, Iran and North Korea and then building up nuclear arsenals has been quite a security concern over the last decade. But also, I mean, if you look at the United States within the last few years and the US, Russia and China, they've placed a far greater emphasis on their nuclear arsenals in this more competitive world. I mean, Tom. Do you think that this is just the UK with the nuclear weapons responding to wider trends? I think that I think that it's difficult because they, they said, I mean, Donald Ralph said that he thought that the the Cold War mentality was outdated. But does this not just represent a return to that? The whole who can build the biggest arsenal and I think that building defences are not not viewed as defences by other countries. They are they these weapons can be used against them, and then that's going to breed violence and breed aggression. Which you know, and it's going to lead to this power struggle and this arms race that they're saying is an outdated concept. Well, I think there are very significant fears. I think with regards to nuclear weapons, and of course. Um, perhaps I don't know if this is with Russia being identified as the main security threat. Um, Enoch, perhaps as a different point to this, um, the threat of weapons of mass destruction terrorism came up um, within the defence review. So now, um, is there perhaps an incentive for nuclear weapons to be continued for this benefit? Of course, nuclear weapon the terrorists aren't a state as such. Yeah. So, so I mean. It's that I I can't see that perhaps as being credible. But what do you think to that? Well, I don't. I yeah. yeah you meant to mention that nuclear weapons terrorism was floated, and I I have to admit that terrified me. I was horrified. Um, I I don't see what a nuke what a good a nuke is against terrorists. You can't nuke a terrorist and nuke a state, and you can't nuke a state without working a media response. I think it's. I I do I do agree with the rest of I do agree with what you pointed before about how. The country getting more and more involved in nuclear, you know, in building nuclear arsenals, and I think that's a problem. Um, not building, maintaining, and becoming more prominent nuclear powers. I think I do think that's a problem. I think we need to now, as a, as a nation, start trying to push the world back towards disarmament, because that's the only way we can be safe. Um, nuclear weapons are just—they're just a disaster. They we cannot have them, have them sort around. Um, 
Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just, it's very shocking to hear new club and terrorism just as a phrase. And I hope I never have to hear it again. I hope this is the last time it ever comes up. I doubt it. Hopefully so. I mean, it has been the fear that a terrorist group gets its hands on a nuclear weapon or another weapon of mass destruction in some point soon. And they said it is likely that one will be used by 2030. We'll hope not. We'll hope that likely leaves enough room for not being used. But let's talk about another issue now, China. Um, China has been a politically controversial issue uh, within the last year, both with the decisions taken over Huawei, but also um, the recent action in Hong Kong. Now, a lot of conservative backbenchers have been really pushing for a tougher stance on China, especially given the things you've just mentioned, but also as a really strong response to the um, Uyghur genocide currently taking place within um, China as well, and a really strong human rights response there. Um, I want to hear what my panel think here. Um, Tom, let's come to you first this time, because... China has been at a point where many politicians have been seeking to try and talk tougher. And the, the defence review does start to go tougher on China and emphasise the need to take tougher measures on things like human rights, tougher measures on things like competition, but also a point really emphasising that you can't just abandon China and trade with China is just as essential. So do you think that they've got the balance right here? I think they're trying to play a very difficult political game here with China. I think, obviously, what's going on um, in Hong Kong and with the Uyghur Muslims is like is is horrendous. And I think that more needs to be done by that. And I think about that. And I think that they're they're not they're not doing anything about that because of the emphasis they put on trade and investment. And I think that. It's just, I think they're 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 prioritizing um, the trade and investment that we have with China over the rights of the people within China, and I think that that I, I don't know, it just doesn't sit quite right with me, if I'm honest. And I would like to see a continuation of the tougher stance that they're beginning to take. Um, obviously, they need to be careful with that because they don't want to come across, across as aggressive. So I think the balance is very difficult, but I think that it is necessary to go further. Well, that point of being aggressive with China, I think, is one that many members of both Conservative Party and the Labour Party have been saying um, needs to be done. Of course, um, Enoch, there's been a lot of discussion with China in the past and China has been quite involved in the UK, of course, the Hinkley Point Power Station, for one example. And David Cameron and George Osborne both really talked the importance of trade with China. But of course, that was very much before the Trump administration. And now this sort of increasingly contentious relationship, I guess, really is a follow on um, from Tom. Do you think perhaps that the UK has sort of through past dealings with China, perhaps put, made itself too close in relations that it perhaps can't be as effective on trying to hold China to account on things like Hong Kong, on things like um, the Uyghur genocide? I think the issue is we thought, um, it was very popular, you know, theory in foreign policy, that trade would force China to come adopt more of our values and that would bring us closer, bring us closer to them there. What we've really learned is all this has made China richer and they've happily ignored it, all of the values before it would have been bought. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think we're now in a position where we are, we've become dependent on them. You know, we're, we're out of some large-scale modification of Western, um, you know, Western economies. I, I think there's no going back, and the, the devil's deal with China at this point. 
I, but I don't think that means our politicians should veer away from taking the tough stances and saying, actually, you know, what you're doing with them, I mean, Uyghur Muslims, I hate, I'm going to say that word wrong, Uyghur Muslims in, um, is wrong. What you're doing in Hong Kong is wrong. Stand up and say something about it. Um, and I, I'm just, I, I'm afraid it might not happen. Odysseus, let's sort of shift the issue slightly, sticking with China, but moving more towards the Indo-Pacific region. Now, um, the relationship with um, Europe and the US has been a really essential part of British defence policy for decades now. But one of the kind of key takeaways from that was a much more of a commitment to the Indo-Pacific region, talking about countries like Japan, Australia. Now, there's perhaps many motivations for this. China could be a motivation. We know that the UK is also trying to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Perhaps this is a reflection of global Britain. I mean, what was your take on that pivot from the UK? Well, I think it's essentially the last remaining possible avenue that they could take. I mean, you in that area, you do uh, have close by uh, major Commonwealth nations and economic powers. You know, you have Australia, New Zealand, and you have nations that you you have been friendly with for a while, including Japan, which the UK has a trade agreement with. I believe that was recently uh, signed. Um, and of course, it's really important economically. And I think, as Boris Johnson mentioned in his statement uh, on Tuesday. Uh, the in terms of military power, and this is going back to something that we discussed, uh, I think, uh, last week about hard versus soft power, it seems that uh, the UK is focusing more on, on hard power uh, as the HMS Queen Elizabeth, a massive uh, carrier ship, uh, will be heading uh, to the Indo-Pacific in the coming weeks on its maiden uh, sort of expedition voyage uh, show of strength um, trip. And I think that's definitely a shift that we can see in the Indo-Pacific and especially as things are sort of rising uh, in terms of tension when it comes to um, South China Sea as well. This is when we talk when we talk about China perhaps being a factor in this, I think it has to be discussed is the issue arising over the South China Sea and US presence in there. Um, so there's a lot of factors. And as China becomes an increasing sort of competitor to the West, of course, the UK, I think, has to shift to the Indo-Pacific. Just one last question. I want to ask this to you, Enoch. Um, Keir Starmer, in his response to the Prime Minister, criticised um, the government for a decade of austerity and cuts within the military. He also um, emphasised the need for tough positions on China and also on speaking about nuclear weapons, said that whilst he doesn't necessarily entirely commit to denuclearization also says that the uk shouldn't be um going ahead with the reversal in its previous stance on nuclear weapons do you think Keir starmer is playing the right calls here um yeah i think he's very broadly he's done what he needs to do in a situation of saying um i oppose the prime minister here's why uh I th- he's in a very thankless job i think in this kind of rote thing because boris wants to just deliver a report on foreign policy case starmer basically like what well, labor's foreign policy is gonna be different and there's there's nothing particularly interesting here there's no particularly big change i think from um well i, I mean actually some very big change from jeremy corbyn's time most of those are just purely leader associated um more uh, more interesting uh, i think is is the police response to the policing bill in terms of opposition, but we won't talk about that. We'll, we'll just focus on this. I think this is fairly vote stuff for opposition leader. Well, um, we'll be talking a little bit about more about the opposition and in general, the opposition within relation to the prime minister, because um, we're going to be talking about 300 years of the prime minister very shortly. Perhaps Keir Starmer's name will be added to that 
one day. But whilst he's not prime minister now, let's talk about all of the others that have come within the last 300 years. That coming up next. But firstly, this. Looking for a bite to eat at the Warwick SU? Daily specials and fine dining experience at the brand new Canopy. Karaoke, pub grub and lager on tap at the Dirty Duck. Salad and sarnies to go in the bread oven. Or a latte link up at Curiosity. There's something to suit any taste and any budget. And if you've got a big night ahead of the copper room, start it right at T-Bar. With speciality cocktails. Best stock prices. And our expertly stock bar overlooking a piazza. At Warwick SU Outlets, there's something to satisfy every taste. Your breakfast, the feel-good way to start your day. This is Breakfast Radio for Warwick students, by Warwick students. Playing the feel-good hits and brightening up your morning. Plus, we have the best gaps, games and giveaways to freshen up your stagecoach commute. Listen to Raw Breakfast every day from 8am. Your student radio station on 12.51am. This is your Raw. We're coming out to the last... The, it, the last little bit of um, debate here this term. And can I say it's been a fantastic term. I feel we've covered quite a bit and I'm now really looking forward to just one little last thing. And ending off, I think, on quite a quite a fun note, this, because the Prime Minister on April the 3rd this year turns 300 years old. It's 300 years since Robert Walpole became inaugurated. Uh, well, I don't suppose he doesn't really have an inauguration here in the UK for the Prime Minister, but since he was appointed as the first Prime Minister by King George I. It's fair to say quite a few prominent holders of that position who have enacted considerable change in their times have come since. Um, I want to, let's start off, I guess, by going to my panel first and asking them who their favourite Prime Minister is. So, Tom, who is your favourite Prime Minister? Okay, so for me, it's got to be Winston Churchill. I Um, think... Why Winston Churchill? I think... Um, it's it's maybe less about the kind of person who he was. I don't know if any of you have seen The Crown, but um, he wasn't presented in perhaps the best light. Um, but I think that what he represents is so important. And he, he represents the sort of unity and a time of unity in the country and, you know, overcoming um, the, you know, fascism and overcoming the aggressor and showing Britain to be, you know, apparent. And I think, you know, it's, it's nice what he represents. Um, and I think, yeah, I think that would be why he was my favourite Prime Minister. Yeah, I mean, it's, of course, important to say over the last year, I think there's been a lot of discussion on the legacy of Churchill, obviously both Churchill as the war hero, but also um, some of his views over time. But certainly... Winston Churchill, one of the most influential, the most important prime ministers of all time. Definitely. Um, Odysseus, who is your favourite prime minister? I'm going to have to go with Harold Wilson. Go on. Very, very, not very unconventional. Not very, many I, I know. I, I mean, I, I, I certainly had a time when uh, Winston Churchill was top of my list. I was really inspired uh, by his speeches. I mean, uh, his writing as well. Phenomenal uh, Nobel Prize for Literature amazing man and prime minister i think but uh some issues around how he dealt uh with the post-war greece did raise some eyebrows when he stabbed uh, gor- the gorillas in the back because they were a little left wing at the time uh so why harold wilson i think because he was the uk's first really 
20th century politician. I think he really brought the UK forward uh, in, in a post-empire age. Uh, he, he, he created the Open University. He made higher education accessible to so many people in a very, very divided society. Uh, even at that time, it was extremely stratified. And one thing that I'm also extremely, I guess, proud of, I don't know uh, what the right word would be, is that he kept the UK out of Vietnam. And I think that was extremely important at the time, and it's very easy to overlook now. Uh, and I think domestically, he was excellent in terms of development and internationally, put the UK, I think, in a decent position in, uh, in the Cold War. No, indeed. I mean, obviously, when I think of Harold Wilson, I think one of the first things that comes to my mind is a lot of the social change that was introduced in his six years, particularly when it comes to things like the legalization of homosexuality, the legalization of abortion, very much, I think, something that many people reflect upon Harold Wilson's time as prime minister. But again, a very unconventional choice as favorite prime minister. Um, Enoch, who is your favorite prime minister? Ooh, this was this was hard for me. This was hard for me because I'm the kind of nerd who actually has a favorite prime minister <laughs> and he thinks about it. Um, <laughs> No, I, I remember as a kid, I, I had, like, oh, as a kid, this sounds horrifying. I had this book on the, the prime, minister, um, prime ministership since, since 1945, but all the post-war prime ministers up until Tony Blair. Um, my dad got it from work, because he used to be a professor of economics, and I, I read it so many, this is, uh, I'm giving too, too much about myself. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think for, for a very long time it was Clement Attlee because I, I, I thought Clement Attlee was that kind of person I love, you know, quiet, reserved, but also very, very good at getting stuff done. But um, over time, I've come to appreciate more and more um, Harold Macmillan, the Supermac himself. Um, just because I, I just love him. He's just so, pretty aside from his, any of his actual work and the achieved. But obviously, the Tory, me and him don't matter. We agree on many, many things. But I, just, I think the sense of style and grace he brought to a role um, this is, yeah, I probably did a fantastic job um, in creating the idea of an ideal prime minister, if not being exact policy-wise what I would have preferred. Yeah, I mean, Harold Macmillan, again, really one of the, uh, a real reflective time, that real Keynesian consensus within the country. But of course, he did get defeated. Oh, and he, did, he actually, no, he didn't lose the election in 1963. But again, very interesting time when Macmillan was prime minister. Um, just very quick question, Margaret Thatcher. Um, according to Anthony Selden, Clement Attlee and Margaret Thatcher, two best prime ministers since World War II. A anyone, anyone back in Thatcher here? I can see the argument. <laughs> I appreciate the argument in many ways probably correct in that she was massively influential and we're still dealing with the artifacts of her work today. I'm not going to do it, though. I refuse to engage in this. <laughs> I, I won't do it. I won't, you won't bait me into this, Cam. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if, if anything, I think she probably forced Labour to become a much more uh, electable party. Uh, you know, I think that's the only good thing to come out of Thatcherism. <laughs> I think I think as a politician, um, getting stuff done, she was very good. But maybe uh, what she was getting done was uh, not so good. Well, Th Thatcher's legacy will always be heavily debated. I just... I just know Thatcher and students aren't normally a very accommodating crowd. So I, ju I just thought I had to bring that one up. But moving on, obviously, now to the prime minister. Um, the role of the prime minister has changed a lot over time. So we've got about two minutes left. So very, very quickly going around each of the panel. What, what do you think has changed most about the role of the prime minister? What do you think might change the most in the future? So, Enoch, I'm going to start off with you. 
Uh, I guess it depends what you mean. Uh, change since when? Um, I'm going to say I'm going to give the easy vote answer. Say it's become more presidential, become more important in the way we understand the role as media has grown. Uh, but that, yeah, that's the easy, quick answer. And what about in the future? Anything you reckon could change there? In the future, I think it's only going to get worse. We're going to get more and more personality focused and more and more focused on that one person on top. So a very pessimistic view of the prime ministership there, Enoch. Um, Tom, what do you think? What what do you think has sort of been the biggest change over 300 years of prime minister? What do you think we can expect to see in the future? I think I've really got to echo Enoch, really. They've become far more presidential and people are now voting far more for the person than they are the party. And I think that that is uh, one of the biggest change. And I think it gives the prime minister a lot of power um, if they're obviously if they're liked. Um, I think that's only going to change with the gro- uh, growth of social media and media in itself, um, because I just think that they will gain more power as long as they have the people behind them. And Odysseus? Yeah, I think 10 Downing Street has gained a great sense of independence uh, when it comes to the powers it exercises. And uh, I'm really worried about the future and how prime ministers might want to curb uh, curb Westminster and Parliament. Uh, I mean, we saw Boris Johnson found guilty of lying to the Queen. I mean, what's next? I, I, I wouldn't like to speculate. That's, uh, that, that, that's not my job anyway on the show. Just very, very quickly, I want one name from each of you. Who will be the next prime minister? I know that that's ultimate speculation. Um, Enoch. Um, Prince Charles is going to drop out of the royal family and run for office, finally achieving his <laughs> dream. So Charles Windsor, you're up. Odysseus. Uh, as much as I dread to say this, I think Boris Johnson's probably going to win the next election. Okay, and Tom? Yeah, I've got to agree with Odysseus. Boris Johnson is going to win it, I reckon. Well, perhaps we're going to hold off Prime Minister Rishi Sunak or indeed Prime Minister Gemma Collins for some time much longer. I know no one's ever suggested that, but that that would be funny. But anyway, that's it for the Alternative View this week and for this term. Um, Thank you so much to everyone who's tuned in and to everyone who has listened. It's been fantastic to have you come. My big thanks to you, my guests, to Enoch, Odysseus and to Tom. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Cam. It's been great to have your company. Um, just one last thing for me, a huge thank you to everyone who has supported the show over the last year. Um, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, whether we'll be back on Raw next term, whether we'll just be doing some little podcast stuff. Please stay in touch with the page. Um, we'll, I'll be putting out a lot more as to future plans. Across campus, online and on 12.51am. This, this, this is your student radio station.